Can you hear it with your ears? Can you see it with your eyes? Can you feel it wiggling between your quivering thighs? That thing, that thing, that thing with James. Once every millennium something will come along. When you feel it, you will know it cause it's coming on strong. That thing, that thing. Stress. Let me come inside your mind I promise you it won't take long to change will happen soon You will feel something so special growing deep within you That thing, that thing, that thing with James That thing, that thing Welcome to That Thing with James J. Asher II. I'm your host, James J. Asher II. That's me. I don't know what I'm going to talk about in this episode. I'm just going to go with the flow. It feels like it's been two weeks instead of one week since the last episode. I guess this has been kind of a long week. But, uh, uh, dude, April? I can't even tell if it was a long month or a short month. But it happened. But it's over now. It's May 2nd right now. My sister's birthday. Just got off the phone with her. Talking uh, family stuff. Always not fun. <laughs> um, I've been reading. Late, I finally found a book that I can focus on. It's my favorite book, which was written also, coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, by my favorite writer, Kurt Vonnegut. The book is... Breakfast of Champions, published first in 1973. 1973 is when it first came out. And I love this book so much. You know, I love it so much. I'm going to read some of it to you. Give me a second. See, the thing I love about Kurt Vonnegut is that he, to me, makes the most sense. He makes the most sense of a universe that is inherently chaotic. He writes on some very complex subject matter, but his style of writing is very easy. He uses simple words, and he pres- and, and he the um, the structure of his writing is very simple, concise, and clear. And I feel that is to the benefit of these big topics he talks about. He makes big things very palatable by writing them in simple ways. Example: Let me uh, find this thing here. It's a great beginning that I'm looking for here. I think it's in chapter one. Let's see here. All right. Yeah, here it is. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. Listen, Trout and Hoover were citizens of the United States of America, a country which was called America for short. This was their national anthem, which was pure balderdash, like so much that they were expected to take seriously. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming, question mark, and the rocket's red glare The bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave, or the land of the free and the home of the brave? 
there were one quadrillion nations in the universe, but the nation Dwayne Hoover and Kilgore Trout belonged to was the only one with a national anthem, which was gibberish sprinkled with question marks. Here is what their flag looked like. In this book, he uh, makes little illustrations with a felt tip pen. It's very fun. It's like a, you know, illustrated book. It was the law of their nation, a law that no other nation on the planet had about its flag, which said, the flag shall not be dipped to any person or thing. Flag dipping was a form of friendly and respectful salute, which consisted of bringing the flag on a stick closer to the ground, then rising it up, raising it up again. The motto of Dwayne Hoover's and Kilgore Trout's nation was this, which meant in a language nobody spoke anymore, out of many, one, e pluribus unum. The undippable flag was a beauty, and the anthem and the vacant motto might not have mattered much if it weren't for this. A lot of citizens were so ignored and cheated and insulted that they thought they might be in the wrong country or even on the wrong planet, that some terrible mistake had been made. It might have comforted them some if their anthem and motto had mentioned fairness and brotherhood or hope or happiness, had somehow welcomed them to the society and its real estate. If they studied the paper money for clues as to what their country was all about, they found, among a lot of other Baroque trash, a picture of a truncated pyramid with a radiant eye on top of it. Like this. Some of you fun people might know that as the uh, Illuminati symbol. <laughs> it's on the $1 bill on the back of it. Not even the President of the United States knew what this was all about. It was as though the country were saying to its citizens, in nonsense is strength. A lot of the nonsense was the in, uh, innocent result of playfulness on the part of the founding fathers of the nation of Dwayne Hoover and Kilgore Trout. The founders were aristocrats, and they wished to, wished to show off their useless education, which consisted of the study of hocus-pocus from ancient times. They were bum poets as well. But some of the nonsense was evil, since it concealed great crimes. For example, teachers of children in the United States of America wrote this date on blackboards again and again and asked children to memorize it with pride and joy. 1492. The teachers told the children that this was when their continent was discovered by human beings. Actually, millions of human beings were already living full and imaginative lives on the continent in 1492. That was simply the year in which sea pirates began to cheat and rob and kill them. There was another piece of evil nonsense which children were taught that the sea pirates eventually created a government which became a beacon of freedom and human uh, freedom to human beings everywhere else there were pictures and statues of supposed imaginary beacon for children to see it was a uh, sort of ice cream cone on fire it looked like this audio people you're missing out as usual but that's okay you, you get to, you know, close your eyes while you're driving to work um, and just listen to my voice, my soothing voice speaking to you, entering your ears, caressing your eardrums, tingling and mingling with your nerves, getting deep, deep inside. You and me, baby, we're one. Mm. We're uniting forming together. I'm going to continue reading now. <laughs> Actually, the sea pirates who had the most to do with the creation of the new government owned human slaves. 
They used human beings for machinery, and even after slavery was eliminated, because it was so embarrassing, they and their descendants continued to think of ordinary human beings as machines. The sea pirates were white. The people who were already on the continent when the pirates arrived were copper-colored. When slavery was introduced onto the continent, the slaves were black. Color was everything. Here is how the pirates were able to take whatever they wanted from anybody else. They had the best boats in the world, and they were meaner and than anybody else. And they had gunpowder, which was a mixture of potassium nitrate, charcoal, and sulfur. They touched this seemingly listless powder with fire, and it turned violently into gas. This gas blew projectiles out of metal tubes at terrific velocities. The projectiles cut through meat and bone very easily, so the pirates could wreck the wiring or the bellows or the plumbing of stubborn human beings, even when he was very far, far away. The chief weapon of the sea pirates, however, was their capacity to astonish. Nobody else could believe, until it was much too late, how heartless and greedy they were. When Dwayne Hoover and Kilgore Trout met each other, their country was by far the richest and most powerful country in the world. It had most of the food and minerals and machinery and it disciplined other countries by threatening to shoot big rockets at them or to drop things on them from airplanes. Most other countries didn't have doodly squat. Many of them weren't even inhabitable anymore. They had too many people and not enough space. They had sold everything that was any good, and there wasn't anything to eat anymore, and still the people went on fucking all the time. Fucking was how babies were made. A lot of the people on the wrecked planet were communists. They had a theory that what was left of the planet should be shared more or less equally among all the people who hadn't asked to come to a wrecked planet in the first place. Meanwhile, more babies were arriving all the time, kicking and screaming, yelling for milk. In some places, people would actually try to eat mud or suck on gravel while babies were being born just a few feet away, and so on. Dwayne Hoover's and Kilgore Trout's country, where there was still plenty of everything, was opposed to communism. It didn't think that it did not think that earthlings who had a lot should share it with others unless they really wanted to, and most of them didn't want to, so they didn't have to. Everybody in America was supposed to grab whatever he could and hold on to it. Some Americans were very good at grabbing and holding, were fabulously well-to-do. Others couldn't get their hands on doodly squat. Dwayne Hoover was fabulously well-to-do when he met Kilgore Trout. A man whispered those exact words to a friend one morning as Dwayne walked by. Fabulously well-to-do. And here's how much of the planet Kilgore Trout owned in those days. Doodly squat. And Kilgore Trout and Dwayne Hoover met in Midland City, which was Dwayne's hometown during an arts festival there in autumn of 1972. As has already been said, Dwayne was a Pontiac dealer who was going insane. Dwayne's incipient insanity was mainly a matter of chemicals, of course. Dwayne Hoover's body was manufacturing certain chemicals which unbalanced his mind. But Dwayne, like all novice lunatics, needed some bad ideas too, so that his craziness could have shape and direction. Bad chemicals and bad ideas were the yin and yang of madness. Yin and yang were Chinese symbols of harmony. They looked like this. The bad ideas were delivered to Dwayne by Kilgore Trout. Trout considered himself not only harmless, but invisible. He would had paid uh, the world had paid so little attention to him that he supposed he was dead. He hoped he was dead. 
But he learned from his encounter with Duane that he was alive enough to give a fellow human being ideas which could turn him into a monster. Here is, was the core of the bad ideas which Trout gave to Duane. Everybody on Earth was a robot except for one, Duane Hoover. Of all the creatures in the universe, only Duane was thinking, feeling, and worrying, and planning, and so on. Nobody else knew what pain was. Nobody else had any choices to make. Everybody else was a fully automatic machine whose purpose was to stimulate Duane. Duane was a new type of creature being tested by the creator of the universe. Only Duane Hoover had free will. Trout did not expect to be believed. He put the bad ideas into a science fiction novel that was where Dwayne Hoover found them. Easy. Let me reread that. He put the bad ideas into a science fiction novel, and that was where Dwayne Hoover found them. The book wasn't addressed to Dwayne alone. Trout had never heard of Dwayne when he wrote it. It was addressed to anybody who happened to open it up. It said to simply anybody, in effect, hey, guess what? You're the only creature with free will. How does that make you feel? And so on. It was a tour de force. It was a joie d'esprit. But it was mind poison to Duane. It shook Trout up to realize that even he could bring evil into the world in the form of bad ideas. And after Duane was carted off to a lunatic asylum in a canvas camisole, Trout became a fanatic on the importance of ideas as causes and cures for diseases. But nobody would listen to him. He was a dirty old man in the wilderness, crying out among the trees and underbrush, Ideas or the lack of them can cause disease! Kilgore Trout became a pioneer in the field of mental health. He advanced his theories disguised as science fiction, he died in 1981, almost 20 years after he made Dwayne Hoover so sick. He was, then, he was by then recognized as a great artist and scientist. The American Academy of Arts and Science caused a moment to be, or a monument to be erected over his ashes. Carved into its face was a quotation from his last novel, his 209th novel, which was unfinished when he died. The monument looked like this. Kilgore Trout, 1907-1981. We are healthy only to the extent that our ideas are humane. I'll let that soak in while I take a water break. It's not going to be a long break for you, but it'll be about 15 minutes for me. It'll be a few seconds for you. I'll be right back. And I'm back. See what I'm talking about with Kurt Vonnegut? He, he writes in a way where like a child could understand, or he writes in such a way that perhaps if some intelligent life form from outer space came to Earth and figured out how to um, speak and read and understand the English language. He presents these things in a way that is understandable to anybody. And the thing about Vonnegut is he experienced great horrors in his life. He was in World War II. Uh, he was a prisoner of war in Dresden, Germany, um, when United States, I believe it was the US, firebombed the city, utterly destroyed it. And supposedly it was one of the most beautiful cities in Europe um, until it was flattened into a moonscape by bombs and a lot of other stuff. He had a rough life, but uh, from all of that ugliness and horror came the beauty of his writing and the beauty of his understanding of the world. He, I, in my eyes, he had a very crystal clear understanding of the hypocrisies of our world. And those hypocrisies have 
been the same for a long time and they're still here. Doodly squat. I, I kind of own doodly squat. I'm, but compared to other people, I'm fabulously well-to-do, insanely well-to-do. Um, <clears throat> but in terms of the United States, I kind of own doodly squat. And um, as far as I know, um, I'm kind of a nobody, but I'm not as much as a nobody's other people. I'm sure there are other people whom are more nobodies than me. Um, comparatively to knower bodies than I, I might be fabulously well-to-do and famous. I've got my own podcast, you know? Um, yeah. I've read on here before some quotes from Vonnegut. One about... Um, the meaning of life, basically. Babies, we are on, human beings are on this earth to fart around and nothing more. Don't let anyone tell you any different. I agree with that philosophy. We're here to round, we're here to fart around and nothing more. Um, and while we're farting around, something brilliant might just come out of it. That's where so many great works of art, uh, engineering, science, philosophy, so many great things generated from the human species came out of a human just farting around. You know, that's, that's where genius comes from. You sit down, you make a, you, if you're a creative, um, Try not to be too hard on yourself, but you will be too hard on yourself because that's the way it goes. If you're not too hard on yourself, you're probably generating trash. But um, commit to doing doodly squat. Now, that is um, not to say not doing anything at all. But, you know, if you're a writer, for example, sit down, find a place where you do your writing and just sit there and fart around set a timer, create a schedule for yourself, sit down in your chair, uh, grab whatever you're using to write with and, uh, fart around and do something with it. Um, but don't try too hard because if you try too hard, then you won't be farting around. You're trying to do something and that usually generates trash. The treasure comes from farting around the good shit. You know what I'm saying? You want to fart out the good shit. Um, mm, a few weeks ago, different subject, maybe. I'll see if this relates somehow, but uh, about three weeks ago, maybe. I think it might have been a, a week into the quarantine. I was talking to my mom on a Sunday, and I'd had a nice night by myself on a Saturday, this the day before. And I was realizing something about a change in the world. Now that change has become different now because a lot, a lot more complex stupidity has entered our current events, our, our, our global circumstances. Um, but at the time, a weekend to the quarantine, a lot of people were talking about um, readjusting their priorities in their lives, realizing that perhaps they've not really been paying attention to themselves, to their to their those close to them, and to their personal lives, or paying attention to their internal lives. They're busy running around working or doing errands or commuting or going out for fun, going out to this place, go out to hike, go out, 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 always going, going, doing, doing something, planning extracurricular events, always doing something, always being productive in some way, always doing like going to some kind of class to try to improve yourself. Now, I'm not trying to say that you should not improve yourself, you most certainly should engage in personal development. 
but a very healthy way in my eyes to engage in personal development, personal growth is by doing very little, is by farting around, stay in, get rid of the plans, get rid of the structure, let go of controlling everything and just sit around and experience life without a schedule. Experience life without a list or a plan or direction. Experience life completely improvised, completely ad-libbed. How often do you commit? How often do you prioritize deprioritizing everything or unprioritizing everything? How often do you schedule having a clear schedule? How often do you just sit and do nothing? Do very little. So many things that we do. Um, I'm pausing because I... <laughs> My brain just throws compound thoughts at me or I'm thinking several different things at once. Um, what am I trying to say? I thought of this when I was on uh, acid, when I was uh, having a good night one night uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I was by myself and I was thinking something to the effect of meditation is the purest form of of existence any human can do. Now, what the fuck did I mean by that? I also, another acid trip, I heard this name, Joko Manashimeng, Joko Manashimeng, and I've been looking it up forever, and I could not find translation, but it didn't sound like, oh, well, that's a story for another time. But I, what I'm getting at is I recently found out that Shimeng is a name, it's a last name, I think it might be Thai. So then what is Jokomana? Jokomana Shimeng. Because I was hearing, I was picking up on some kind of frequency. Anyway, that's completely unrelated to anything that I'm talking about here. What am I talking about? What I'm talking about is existing. What I'm talking about is being and doing and having some kind of purpose. And... Um, we make up our purposes. I've talked before about how, you know, everything is chaotic, about how everything is arbitrary and absurd. All of our, our plans, the society, our laws, our rules, our traditions, they're arbitrary and absurd, most of them. Manufactured. The things that make our lives difficult, scarcity, poverty, both things that are entirely manufactured. They do not exist anymore. There's plenty for everybody. And the idea that in 2020, there is poverty and scarcity, it's a crime. And it's a manufactured lie that those who tell the lie and try to control other people spread that lie through many different sorts of media, through schools, through homes, through traditions, TV, newspapers, everything, public discourse. Yeah, manufactured consent, manufactured lies. There's plenty for everybody. Money should be obsolete. What does that have to do with James, dude? Where are you going with this, man? Um, meditating is the most doing anyone can do, I guess. What the fuck was I thinking of? It was so good, too. <laughs> it was like, uh, you do stuff, okay? You do stuff for reasons. You go to a comedy improv class an improvisation 101 class, and you learn improv to develop yourself, okay? Go there to develop yourself. To A lot of people do it to um, get better 
and more comfortable at public speaking. A lot of salespeople, a lot of professionals who have no interest in uh, the performance arts, salespeople, presenters, people who aren't really interested in performance arts will still go to an improv class to learn how to be, how to exist and act and think on their feet and keep something flowing instead of stopping and freezing with utter terror and stage fright. Um, people do that. So say you got a salesperson, goes to an improv class a couple nights a week, maybe or once a week. They have an improv class they engage in, and they're doing it so they can get better at sales. And they want to get better at sales because they will feel well, a few different things. If they get better at sales, hopefully they would make more money, which would make living a little bit easier since their existence is predicated by their having money. The way they're able to secure food and drink and shelter and any kind of social life requires that they have money. And they want to get better at sales so they can get more money so that maybe their life feels a little bit less scary, a little bit more secure, uh, just a little bit easier, hopefully, ideally, a little bit easier. But they also want to get better at sales because that's their job. That's something they do. That's something they commit a lot of time to every week after week, year after year making money by doing sales. I don't know what the fuck they're selling, but they're selling something. So they want to feel good about this thing that they're committing so much of their life and mind and energy to. And then they also have people that they work with, people who they believe judge them on their performance as a salesperson people who they think they can impress if they are a better salesperson. So they're pursuing sales because they want, ideally, they want to be liked, they want to be respected, they want life to be easier, and they want to feel good about themselves. What are some other things we do? We go to theme parks. We watch TV shows. We do all this stuff. We engage in all these things. We run and run and run and chase these dreams we have, uh, these supposed priorities and responsibilities we have. We live up to others' expectations of ourselves. We live up to our own expectations, expectations that have been instilled in us, given to us by other people who got these same expectations given to them by other people, and so on. It's a fractal of expectations. It's a fractal of behavior. It's a fractal of decorum. And it's all arbitrary. The color of clothes you must wear, the way you must walk, the way you must talk, the cars you must buy, the way you must think, the way you must exist is predicated by what other people say it should be, rather than it necessarily being something that you feel in your heart of hearts that you feel deep down in your gut is the way not that it should be but the way it is it is man it is what it is i'm on it i'm on it i'm gonna take another quick water break but i'm on this ball be right back
I'm back, and I'm going to tie this motherfucker up with a bow, and I'm going to make it real pretty. I'm going to get some scissors. I'm going to open them up. I'm going to use my thumb to press one harsh portion of the ribbon against the open blade, create pressure, zip, make it all curly so it's curly and shiny and nicely tied. A nicely tied, curly, shiny, bouncy, ribbony bow made of uh, plastic and some shit that makes it look the color gold. And that thing will be wrapped around the gift of the message I am giving you in this episode. And that gift is truth. That gift is truth that many people found themselves realizing one week into quarantine when so many things that they took for granted, so many things that they expected always would be the way they were, things that people thought were reality, were true, were reliable, would always be this way, so to speak, people found themselves, their lives subverted, turned upside down, shaken, uprooted in so many meaningful ways that many people found themselves without a job, without a place to live, without a way to take care of themselves, or I'm very fortunate that I, I still have a, a day job and I'm, I have the support of people I love and who love me. I'm very, very, very well-to-do in that regard. Um, and mutual support. But many people found themselves asking questions because some essential pillars of their reality crumbled or had shifted or tilted or transformed somehow. Their reality transformed. And that led them to start asking some very essential questions about who they are. What do they care about? What are their priorities? And then, at least in the United States, they saw the way the policymakers who perhaps they genuinely believed were caring for their, their being the constituencies, best interests. They saw policymakers, both Republican and Democrat, failing utterly to meet. To, to, to do anything to really help the problems that you were having. You, a working person. You, someone who's not filthy rich. You have real material concerns. Material concerns. Material, palpable things. Food. Shelter. Money to exist. Material concerns as opposed to aesthetic concerns, as opposed to identity politics, they watched as their popular, famous representatives didn't do jack shit for your material well-being. But they gave you all sorts of pablum, all sorts of empty talk, all sorts of aesthetic, all the right messages and sayings, united, together we are strong, they say this stuff, but then don't do jack shit. And of course, one side of the aisle has a bit more leverage in what policies get passed right now. However, the opposition on the other side also had, has leverage that people watched as, they, as the opposition didn't do nearly enough to be opposition. There is no opposition. There is no left-right. A lot of people are figuring that out. There is no left-wing, right-wing. 
the people are figuring out the problem is not the aesthetics. The problem is not identity. The problem is not the pablum you spout. The problem is who controls who? Who is exploiting who? Landowners, property owners, business owners, people making a disproportionate amount of money off of the work that someone else is doing on their behalf. A lot of people started realizing that's the way the shit is right now and has been for a long time. And a lot of people started seeing on a more personal level how much better they felt when they didn't have to commute how much better they felt when they spent more time at home with the people they live with, with their roommates, with their pets, with their family, with their lovers. People had their priorities rearranged for them. Once, a quarant- once quarantine came around, and the threat of a very real pandemic hit. So, all this stuff I was talking about in this, in the last portion before this last break, all these things we do, they're arbitrary, they're part of a play that is what does it exist for? Why is why are things the way they are? Why are things the way they are? How is it that we live in a country that is supposedly held up by the empty words of strength and rightness and freedom and liberty and justice? How is it that every single one of those things fall apart when a material challenge like a novel virus turning into a pandemic completely cuts the legs out of this machine, out of this structure, and leaves you questioning, was the structure, and well, it clearly was not as well-built, as soundly built as I thought it was. It's clearly not as soundly built as I was told it was because it's all falling apart now. And uh, some people have been saying that for a long time. And a lot of people just either didn't hear those people saying that we live in a shoddy machine or they did hear people say we live in a shoddy machine and they chose to not listen for various reasons. Or perhaps they heard people saying, you and me, this machine we live in is a shoddy machine. We are living in a lemon. Not necessarily in the fruit itself, but lemon as in a junker of a car. Just for metaphorical examples. Or I guess simile, because I wasn't saying like... Uh, or maybe simile is like whatever fuck it Um, a lot of people are questioning very basic things that some people have been questioning their entire lives I and many of my favorite people people I don't know people I do know are people who question fundamental things all the time. It's a healthy exercise and it keeps you real. It keeps you down to earth and it keeps you and other people honest. It keeps perspectives honest. You know what the fuck is going on. Um, and you know who's lying to you. And once you know who's lying to you, you'll start to see who? Who is lying to me? How are they lying to me? What are they lying to me about? And why are they lying to me? 
And this is a lot bigger topic, but it comes down to money, power, and control. Your life, your your class that you go to, you 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 pay you you pay with money that goes to someone else. You go to a theme park that's run by someone else. The boss's 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 boss has so much more money and makes uh, exponentially larger amount of money than someone who puts in more labor than someone else. Um, the whole system is built on, and it's a very old system. It's been around for thousands of years, thousands and thousands of years. Um, comes down to the few lording over the many. You are making someone else money when you go out to these classes. You are making someone else money when you go to a theme park. You are making someone else money when you go vote for this person that you were told you're supposed to vote for. This person you were shamed into voting for. You are making someone else money when you put gas in your car. You're making someone else money when you pay rent. You're making someone else money when you buy certain type of clothing or watch a TV show or a movie or listen to some type of music. You're making someone else money. And this whole machine, this whole game, this will apply better, this whole game is built in a way to get more money into the pockets of the people who already have more money than you and every single person you know will ever make in their entire lifetimes combined. You're making someone else money. You're playing a game that someone else built by rules that someone else made. You're playing a game in which uh, you're playing a rigged game. The house always wins. And you're doing all these things and worrying and trying to find meaning. Why? Why me? Why me? Why me? Who am I? What am I? What is my purpose? You, because you were fucking unlucky enough to be born. Furthermore, unlucky enough to be born where you are, when you are. You, because uh, you didn't ask to be here, but you're here and you're getting thrown into this game that you never asked to get thrown into. And it's not your fucking choice, but if you want to live, if you want to be comfortable, if you don't want to get punished and shamed, you better play the fucking game and you better play it by the rules the house gives you. The house always wins. And so, how much of that really, truly, essentially, beyond any kind of game, beyond money, beyond uh, social stratums, how much of what you do is meant for you, really meant for you alone? How much of what you do is conscious of the game you live in? So when I said earlier that meditation is the most doing, meditation is the purest form of being, I mean just that. Buddhists talk about monkey mind. They say your mind and your body is constantly moving from this thing to the next. Think of monkey, monkey mind like a monkey swinging from branch to branch around the tree, constantly moving and shouting and crying and chasing something and fiddling with something else, always chasing this stuff for, for, for what purpose? Why? What are, what are they really doing? What purpose does the things they're doing serve? Do they ever stop to think about why they are doing what they do in the way they do it? 
So to sit and just focus on your breathing, it's difficult. Even for people who've been practicing meditation for a long fucking time, it can be difficult. Some days it can be very easy. Some days it can be the most challenging thing ever. Just sitting still for set number for a set number of minutes. Just sit still and do nothing. Although you're not really doing nothing. You're existing, you're breathing, your heart is still pumping blood through your veins. Your mind is still active. You're still digesting things. You still have a microbiome and uh, so many other individual organisms, whole sovereign organisms that make up you. And they're all just being them. Hmm. So, so when I had the conversation with my mom, a week or two into quarantine, I told her, not all this stuff, but she's my mom. She fucking knows me. She knows this stuff. I told her, my whole life, I have always felt out of step with the world. But now, with the quarantine and with so many people, what I hear so many people talking about, things that are occurring to them, questions they're asking. Now, even just on a feeling level, now I feel like I am in step with the world. I've always felt offbeat. Now I feel onbeat. Now the thing is, I don't know. And I told her, I was like, I don't know if it's that I got in step with the world or if the she interrupted me and she said, no, the world got in step with you. So maybe you're feeling more in step. Ask yourself why. Hmm. Okay. I'm done. <laughs> Pay me, please. So go to Patreon. Support the show. Patreon.com slash that thing with James if you want. Become a patron, help support, get access. I, I just published a, a new, very short story. It's very silly. It's called Message in a Bottle, and it uh, travels across millennia. It's a very cool story and short and funny and easy to read, but you can only access it if you become a donor at patreon.com slash that thing with James. Um, subscribe, all that stuff. Share the show, please. I'd love to have more people in on this fun. And other than that, uh, thanks for tuning in again. I love you. I really do. And see you next week. Bye.